a sip instead of yours. If you're looking for a way to get more positive things going into your life, I'd encourage you to check out our friends at Christian Living Magazine. You can find out everything you need at ChristianLivingMag.com. Hey, good morning, everybody. It is Saturday. We are on the third lesson here. I mean, it feels like we should be on the fifth lesson here, but we're on the third lesson. In Genesis, lesson number three is is chapter two, verses four to 25. So we're basically going to cover all of chapter two. Okay, we, we basically just got through the very, very ending of chapter one, the first three verses of chapter two, which... It honestly kind of feels like that should just still be part of chapter one. And now we're getting into chapter two, which is the creation of man and woman. And we're looking at a very different approach here, right? This is this is the biblical approach and the biblical account of the creation of man and woman. And we'll see when we get into this, but it almost kind of backsteps, talks. You get a nice broad view of everything that's going on and the creation story. And then we're going to backstep just a little bit and then re-go back into the specifics of creating man and woman, again, for a purpose, right? There's always a purpose behind the storytelling. There's always a purpose behind how, how it's described and why things are done a certain way. So let's let's dig into this. We've got a lot to cover today. In fact, I, I almost didn't, didn't do this today. I almost postponed this because it was, prep was taking considerable amount of time because some of the things we're going through. So let's, let's just dig into it. Let's do this. So Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 to 25 in the English Standard Version today. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man out of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Hivala, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Vidalim and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gahon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. 
but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. All right, so we're going to break this into three basic sections here. Verses 4 to 9, garden and man. 10 to 17, tree of knowledge. And 18 to 25, not alone. All right, so let's just start at verse 4 because this is a, it's a separate little section, right? You get, it's actually 4A and B. This is broken into two different pieces. But first we have, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. Let's pause right there. These are the generations. Now, this signifies if you go through Genesis, and as we go through Genesis, we're going to start seeing this time and time and time again. You're going to see these are the generations, that key phrase right there. These are the generations. This signifies a new section. It signifies a changing of the viewpoints and a changing of the topics, and we're going to adjust how we're, how we're looking and how we're discussing these things, okay? So these are the generations. You can look ahead. We'll see them again when we get there, but chapter 5, verse 1, 6, 9, 10, 1, and so on. There's several places like this. Now, then it gets to 4B. This is where it shifts. So we have kind of this introductory section right there in 4A, which is just announcing we're changing. We're changing the, the, the format. We're changing the topic. We're, we're going to readjust and go out, which for this is actually going in. We had the broad picture of creation, created all things, weed that down, right? Now we're going to look specifically at the creation of man because we already saw God created man special. Go back to, to the last lesson, God created humans special. And so we're going to focus in on humans, humanity. Why are humans special? What? Let's look at this creation of mankind. So 4B, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. We haven't seen this yet, okay? Inside Genesis, and mind you, Genesis is the first book, Right, this is the very beginning of Scripture. So we have not seen this period yet, where it is Lord God. This is where things get fun in translations. Okay, Lord God, especially when you see Lord in all caps in the Old Testament, Lord in all caps, or even just straight up L capital, and then everything else is lowercase. The Lord is is when we would actually see Yahweh or Jehovah. Okay, it, it just depends. It's it's one of those, how do we pronounce that? Well, in the ancient Hebrew, they didn't use the vowels. They wouldn't write the vowels. And also, names held power. 
And it was great dishonor, great disrespect. And it was one of those things that was one of the ultimate things that you could do horribly wrong would be mispronounce God's name. You could either use his name in vain. You could use it for the wrong purposes, or you could just flat just say it wrong. And it got to the point where they stopped even saying his name. And so it, it's one of those, some firmly believe it is Yahweh. And that is just the direct, it's, it's just, we're just going to go Yahweh. Others say it's Jehovah, whether you pronounce it with a hard J or more of the Y, yeah, because that's actually how it would be pronounced, especially you dig that back to like the Latin, Yehovah. Okay. So whether that's Yahweh or Yehovah, either way, when we see Lord like this, that is actually the name of God, Yahweh. Okay. So Yahweh or Yehovah. So Lord, God, God here in capital G, this is the term for spirit, other spirit entity. It is the capital Elohim and is the main one. So this is actually the form for signifying the supreme being, which is God. So Lord Yahweh, God, this is, this is what this is. Now, in think about how I want to say this here. Most of the time it's Yahweh until we get to, for Lord, it's Yahweh until we get into like the post-exilic period. Once we had the exile and we are leaving the exile and going back, it shifts and primarily becomes Adonai. Now, Adonai means king, okay? It was something that was denoted specifically for lordship as in kings and royalty. Now, that shift again is because they had stopped using the name and we no longer remember how to pronounce this name. So we're going to shift and it's going to change and it becomes Adonai. So you get into the post-exilic period and it just means post-exilic is a fancy term, just means post-exile, after the exile, after the Babylonian exile, okay? So once you go past that, when you see Lord like this, it it's Adonai. It's a shift in the language, but it's still the same thing. Now, God is always going to be for the most part, more or less, for the most part, is going to be that Elohim in a reference to God, not just other spirit creatures, not spirit entities, but specifically to God. New Testament, because this is, you still see this in the New Testament versus the Old Testament. Once you get into the Greek, it, it highly simplifies. Once you see God in the Greek, it's almost universally, so almost every single time, it is theos, which just means deity means God. So there's no more, are we discussing, you know, are, should we debate, is this a, a a different spirit entity or are we really talking about God? And then when we talk about Lord, it's kurios, which literally means master. So Lord, master, same thing. And then deity, God. Okay. So it cleans up really nice when we get into the, the New Testament. But when we're talking about the Old Testament, it is pre-exilic. Usually it's going to be Yahweh or Yehovah for Lord, God is Elohim. Now, this is a shift in this. And why I'm, I'm making a point of this is we hadn't seen this before. We saw God made, God made, God made. But now we're seeing a shift to Lord God. And I, I'm going to put something out there that may be revolutionary to your thinking. It may be one of those, this is duh moments, right? Like why, why are you wasting your breath on this? Oftentimes when we see things in scriptures, it's there for a reason. Okay. The shifting in the name, there's a purpose for this. Okay. We're going beyond just God and we're shifting and the author is shifting. So 
Moses, the storytelling, however you want to look at this, is shifting this and changing the approach of how we view God. First, we saw God, just the creator. Now we see Lord, okay, Yahweh, we're getting his name. We're being told that there's extra to this, which ties into the Hebrew minds. Now, mind you, into the Hebrew minds, because we, we want to read, when we read the scriptures, we want to read it in the context of who was it written for, right? So go back to the early days, go back to when this was out, pre-Jesus, right? Go back into that mindset so that we can try to understand what was being said by this. What would they glean from this so that we can glean the appropriate principles for our lives? What are they getting from this? Well, Yahweh is his name. There's power in his name. Think about Moses when he goes to the burning bush. Tell them I am have sent you. Okay. It's the covenant to Abraham. Okay. This is a covenantal tie. It's showing that personal nature. First, we get God, the God who created all things, created all things. If we had the, the pagans, if they believe that these things exist, if they exist, it's because God made it, right? God did this. Okay, so we saw that earlier. Now we're going down into the creation of man. God made man special. And because God made man special, it gets more intimate. You get more of a closeness and a directness to this and a tie to this. And God only gave his name to the Israelites. So it is a very profound thing saying this God, the God who gave that covenant to Abraham, the God who did all of these miraculous wonders is the same God that did all of the creating in the very beginning. It is a linking and a tying to this. And it seems really small, right? For us looking today, especially when we're going from a translation, it was just God to Lord God. Okay. I mean, how, how long did you read your, your Bible before you started catching that? What, why? Or before you just started skimming over that stuff and Lord and God, they mean the same thing. So you just go for it. Right. So when looking at this, that actually is a major significance in linking and telling the Hebrew people, the Israelites, that the God who created man, the God who created all, and then purposefully created man in a distinct way and wanted them to be special and set apart from the rest of creation. That's the same God who gave the covenant to Abraham and created all of the things and made it to where they, they could get out of the land of Egypt. Okay, think again, this is coming from Moses. So that all ties in very nicely to that. Okay, this is a great, great anchor point for that. Let's keep going here. Five to seven. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. Now, let's stop here for a second. So that, that tells us we're, we're backing up. Okay, we're backing up in time. God, we, we finished the story, right, of the seven-day creation period. You already talked about he made man and he made man and woman. That part's done. Now we're backing up to the creation of man. And he's saying, look, before all of this had been done, there was nothing happening on the field. There was nothing happening on this. Now, God had already made plants and trees at some point, and then he had made the rain, right? We go through the story and we look at the dates and everything. Okay, so he's just saying, let's back up a little bit. Let's back up into the story. There was no rain on the land. There was still water there, was there. If we look here at verse six, there was a mist, a mist going up from the land 
and was watering the whole face of the ground. Now, when I would skim this, you know, when I, I would read this before and I would skim this, I in, in my mind, I see this vision kind of like off of, off of the coast, right? You get mist coming up off of the coast and coming up onto the mountain and that mist from the ocean water waters all of the plants. That's like, I, I obviously I we're doing sip and study, right? Sip for coffee or tea. Where do you get good coffee? <gasps> Volcanic islands where they typically don't get a ton of rain, but they actually get a ton of that moisture that comes directly up off of the ocean. And that mist comes up and waters that. And so when I'm reading this, that's where my mind goes. I'm getting, you know, this mist comes up off of the water, but that's actually not what the text says. In fact, the text here is, is quite literal and it talks specifically about, in fact, that the ground water, the, the, this mist would come up from the land. That land literally means dirt ground. Like it, it can also mean the pit, like under the earth, this mist comes out of the soil and rises up in and waters the whole face of the ground. It waters everything else. So there was actually moisture that was being described here coming up out of the soil and then watering everything else. Now, if depending on your translation, some translations, because how, how do you get mist that just comes up out of the soil, except for maybe when it's, you know, the temperature's right and you just get that fog that kind of elevates, the moisture comes up and you get that dew point and you just kind of see that. Maybe that's what they're describing. So some translations translate the mist as a stream, saying that the water would come up and bubble up as a stream and pour out and it would flood irrigate kind of the, the whole ground, the whole of the area. Where are we discussing? We, we, we don't know, right? Is this the entire earth? Maybe. Was this the Garden of Eden area where we're about to get to? Maybe. It's just, this is what's being described. And I'm, as a study point, I just want to get that out to you, that this is what's being said. And then verse seven, then the Lord God, again, we see Lord God, Yahweh God, okay, Yahweh Elohim, formed the man of dust, meaning we're from dust, like dust to dust, right? Okay, formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, a breath of life right there back into it. And man became a living creature. Now, we go back into the day of this, and this is giving a very vivid image that would strike a solid point to the readers. They're going to understand this because that's their homeland, right? This is where they're from. And it gives a very vivid image of a Middle Eastern desert. It needs human care. It has to be tended, right? You have to irrigate the thing. You have to dig ditches, run canals, pipe water over, however you're going to do that, right? You have to irrigate it to get the things to go. There's nothing going on. And so God's making it water making these things happen. Okay, so he's just painting a very vivid picture. And he was formed and breathed, formed a man and then breathed him into life. Now, in Hebrew, the, the formed here is Yasar. And I know I butchered that. Sorry, I don't speak Hebrew. So I'm just going to pronounce it as, as basic Caucasian as possible, Yasar. And it just, it really leans towards and really means like creatively made. It's a lot of people will take this as the, it's like a potter, uh, right? A potter using clay to create a pot. But it also can implicate any kind of creativity and creation that way. Like 
as a musician, creating your music. It's a creation. You're forming the melody lines. You're putting it together. It's very creative. It, it just shows and denotes artistic creativity, which is not hard to imagine. Go outside, away from the city, right? Go outside, get into a, the mountains or the foothills or a field. Look around. One of my favorite things to do, and I think Sonny's finally getting used to this because we're, you know, it doesn't matter where we go. It doesn't matter what we do. I love sounds. I, I just listening to the morning birds and the changes of different types of birds in different areas. I absolutely love that. That is one of my favorite things. But I listen to this stuff and I look at these things and it becomes very evident that God is creative. This isn't all utilitarian. This the God who created everything created things in a way that is very artistic. It's very beautiful. It's not just utilitarian. It's not just for form and function, but there is a lot of beauty and nuance involved in this. And we see that being used here. Okay, that's what's being discussed here is when God formed man, he creatively formed man. It wasn't just I need somebody to do something, so we're going to, you know, how can we make this the most efficient? It says, how can we make something that I'm happy with and that will represent me to the rest of creation? And so he creatively formed man and then breathed life into Adam, giving man more than simply form, but spiritual and physical life. Hey, Sip and Studiers. As you may know, the family and I have been called into missions and are now officially missionaries to the church in Pakistan. Can't tell you how excited we are for this. It's a great opportunity, and we are so blessed for it. But if you've known anybody who's gone into missions, you know, can't do it on our own. We need people to be partnered with us, partnered in prayer, and yes, also in financial support. But there's so much more. If you feel God tugging at your heart, letting you know that he has a plan for you to make an impact in the church in Pakistan, we'd love for you to reach out to us and partner with us. And you can do that and more at chogglobal.org slash dsbrown. That's chogglobal.org slash dsbrown, as in Drew and Sonny Brown. Now, back to the study. Notice I shifted there from man to Adam. Have you ever wondered why is the first man called Adam? It's because the Hebrew Adam, Adam, means man. That's, that's where we get the name, Adam. Man, Adam. There you go. All right, eight to 10. And the Lord God, again, we see Lord God, Yahweh Elohim. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. Now, finally, we're seeing the name Eden, where we're starting to discuss this initial place. Okay, Garden in Eden. In the east, great, east of where? Well, think about where they're at. If Moses is doing this, seriously, think about this. Have you, if you, have you ever read this and wondered, east where? East of, where is east? Okay, this is why the history is important. Moses does this. This is a story either written by Moses or, or it is verbal history, passed down and then finally written down, right? Either way, it doesn't matter. This is coming through Moses. When? when? When was Moses around? Oh, that's right. Is it, wasn't he the guy who brought the people out of Egypt and then they roamed the desert? 
heading towards the promised land, but Moses never actually made it there. So this is between Egypt and Israel. Keep that in mind. This is something that's very, very important. Okay, keep that in mind because we're going to start looking at maps here in a minute. To the east, east of Egypt, between Egypt and Israel is where they're at. So you can say to the east, east of there. That's what east is. You have to know the reference point. East from there. So planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. Now, pause. Just think about this for a second. They're going to the promised land. They're not there yet. They're to the east of Egypt. And he's telling them to the east of where we are, in the direction where we're heading. God had planted his place, Eden. Linking and correlating, are, we get, are, you, are you getting some of the visuals here? Is this making sense? Is this, uh, is this opening it up? I'm hoping this is opening it up a little bit for you. He put the man who he had formed. So God created him. Where? Maybe. Maybe right there. He might have just formed him right there. He might have moved him there. We, we don't know. It just says he put the man there where he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God, again, Lord God, very personal, and yet also linking that into that covenant, made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Okay, so Eden is made. Eden, it's more than just a lush garden. Okay, we're, we're gonna dig into to some of this a little different. Maybe a little different than you're going to get through a lot of other study sources, okay? But Eden is much, much, much more than just a lush garden. In fact, the Hebrew root here, the GNN, the gun, means that it was enclosed and or protected. It was either a walled off area or it had straight up protection all the way around it, which makes sense when we get a little bit further, okay? But it was protected. It was a protected, lush garden place. It was a place unlike any other where man was meant to mingle with God. So man was meant to mingle with God. And dare I say, also his counsel, his spiritual counsel. They were also meant to mingle with all the plant life and the animals and everything was meant to be in harmony. This was like a perfect utopian place where everything that as it was meant to be was. This was more or less, God's residence on earth. Where God's going to be, it needs to be perfect. Okay, where God the Father is going to be. When we think God, like, okay, the Holy Spirit is everywhere. The Holy Spirit's everywhere, right? He even resides inside of us. I know I'm not perfect. So if the Holy Spirit can't be where it's not perfect, we couldn't be here, right? So Jesus, God the Son, that portion came in the form of Jesus, also where it wasn't perfect, but it resided in a perfect person, someone who lived that perfect life, okay? When the Holy Spirit comes inside of us, we are then thus transformed over time, some in different rates than others, right? But we're transformed over time to be more like Christ, to be more like Jesus, because it makes us more perfect. To be in the presence of God makes things better. It makes things more perfect. It makes things closer to his design. Okay. But where God the Father is, he needs to be in a perfect area. You can't be. When you start looking at the scriptures talking about the throne room of God in heaven, I mean, even, even the angels are covering their eyes. They struggle because they can't really look upon him. 
So, but this is where man was meant to mingle and cohabitate with everything, including God and even his divine counsel. This was God's residency here on earth. This was his temple garden, which sounds really, really weird to us. Because when we think a temple, we think of this gigantic building. It's all put together fancy, right? That's not an ancient mindset temple. In fact, go back in time. Take yourself back in time. In people of ancient days, where did the gods, plural or even singular, where would they say they resided? They resided either in lush gardenscapes or on the tops of mountains, super high mountains to where people couldn't get to the top, which we'll also see throughout scripture. Eden is also described as a giant mountain. There's just reference points. This is just like the abode of God. Okay, They're just describing this is where God would live. And if we're going to say where God's going to live, God needs to be where people would think that, God's would, that God would be. Okay, So that's, that's the reference point. This is God's temple guardian, which if we stop and think about that for a second, if God is seen as a, as a king, God and king, if this is where he's going to reside for earth, and to do earthly things. His counsel, anyone who wants to come and speak to him or anything, would need to be there inside of that. And that's why we would say there's there's other references. You start getting into some of the other Apocrypha and, and Deuterocanonical. Well, I'm missing words. Anyway, you get into some of the other historical context pieces, not necessarily scriptural pieces, but historical context pieces. And you you start to see other linkings and things for the mindset of the day. Anyway, this this is God's throne, temple, garden. And that's part of the reason, and we can also link this to part of the reason why when they built the temple, the insides of the temple were also designed to depict portions of this perfect place where God resided on earth. Let's take a look. First Kings 6.18, the cedar within the house was carved in the form of gourds and open flowers. All was cedar, no stone was seen. Skip a little bit ahead to verses 27 to 29. He put the cherubim in the innermost part of the house and the wings of the cherubim were spread out so that a wing of one touched one wall and a wing of the other cherub touched the other wall. Their other wings touched each other in the middle of the house and he overlaid the cherubim with gold. All around the walls of the house, he carved engraved figures of cherubim, palm trees, open flowers in the inner and outer rooms. He's designing, and the temple is meant, the inside of the temple is designed to look like and designed to imitate or, or emulate the garden, God's perfect place. But if it's meant to emulate the perfect place, why are the cherub and the cherubim there? If it was just God and man, why would there be cherubim there? Because God has his counsel and his angels there with him. That's why. Now, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge, just move on with this. The tree of life and the tree of knowledge, some, some hold the belief that they're the same tree. Okay, there's a few different beliefs here because you just, you don't start to see much changing after this, okay? Some hold the belief that these are the same tree because of a couple places, but specifically like looking at 3.3. So we'll look ahead just a little bit to Genesis 3.3. God said, 
You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. Well, if we look here, the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Is it differentiating saying these are two different trees or is this different, you know, just saying the tree of life, which was also the tree of knowledge and good and evil because it's in the midst of the garden. Others hold the belief that they're a species of trees or at least the tree of life was a species of tree and not necessarily an individual tree at all. Some believe that the tree of life produced either eternal life or healing or gave you life to the fullest. Whereas the the tree of knowledge gave insight and thus signifies the heart of man. And this is a, a storytelling of the heart of man. And you can live and have eternal life and live perfectly with God, or you can seek power, right? And so man seeks power rather than the fullest of life. Let's look at 10 to 14. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. Now, remember I said, it seems to make sense why they were saying it wasn't just a mist. It was a river or a stream that bubbled up and flowed out. Here you go. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. All right, divided into four rivers. The name of the first is Bashan. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havala, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellum and onyx stone are there. Now, we don't actually know what Bedellum is. If you look at, if you look that up, some say it's like an ember. Some say it's another stone. Some say it's a metal. We, we don't really know what that translates as, what it means. It's just there was another thing that was known to the people of the day that was there. An onyx stone was there. And the name of the second river is Gehom. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. We'll get there in a second. And the name of the third river is Tigris, which is kind of a known river, right? Which flows east of Assyria. Okay. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Again, also a known river. Now, the main belief here is that Eden was in the region that's known as the Fertile Crescent. This is always that big question. Where, where was Eden? Where was Eden? Can we get back to it? Where is it at? Is it a hidden place? Is it buried underground now? Is it where? Okay. The main belief is that it's in this area known as the Fertile Crescent. We're going to show you a map here in a minute. But it's in this region that's known as the Fertile Crescent. Now, the Tigris stems from eastern Turkey and joins the Euphrates before entering the Persian Gulf. We'll see that here. The Euphrates also starts up in Turkey and then swings through Syria and even into Iraq. Now, here's where things get fun because we know of these two rivers, but there's two other rivers that aren't necessarily as easy to understand where they at. So the Pishon means the spouter. Okay, it means to spout or the spouter. And the Gahan means the gusher. It's a gushing river. So a spouting river and a gushing river. These aren't really that clear. We don't know where these are at. They, they may have been in the Mesopotamian region because that's kind of where we're at historically. And you start looking at the regions and what else is being said. And so they may have been still in that Mesopotamian region, which is still a rather large region, but they might have actually gone even further out. In fact, some believe that they might be the Nile and the Indus River, including the Indus River Valley, 
which those are very lush areas regardless. So that could actually make sense. But that makes the potential region of the Garden of Eden much larger than I think most would actually anticipate this to be. But God made it, so it's going to be the size that God wants it to be, right? Now, we start looking at this, and, and, and part of the reason people would say some of this is because referring to the land of Cush. So the Gihon is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. Now, Cush typically refers to Ethiopia. Now, ancient Ethiopia was in a slightly different region than what we describe as Ethiopia today, but it was, in fact, here, we'll show you, let's, let's look at some maps here. So this green region is typically what's referred to as the Fertile Crescent. Now, it comes all the way down here into the Persian Gulf. That's what this is down here. This is the Persian Gulf. And here, up here at the north side of this is the Tigris. Down here on the bottom is the Euphrates. And if you'll notice, you come down all the way here, you get Israel, a little bit of Jordan. And then you come up here through Lebanon and Syria, comes up into Turkey, because these rivers actually come up and start way up into Turkey. And, and then that comes down into Iraq and a little bit into Iran and even touches a little bit here into Kuwait. Okay, so that gives you a good mindset of what this fertile crescent is traditionally seen as or typically seen as. Now, if we look at a more modern map, we look at today, so this is just Google, right? If we were discussing that, let's, let's get again a nice, nice idea of where we're talking. This was that crescent. That's pretty small. I mean, it's, it's a big area, but it's not huge. The land of Cush was actually right around here. So to the west of the Red Sea and just south of Egypt, but kind of touching up here against the Red Sea. So you kind of touch into Sudan, this region right around in here. This is the land of Cush. So if the land of Cush is where the other river touched and came around, it actually might make sense that the Nile River here, then the Nile River might actually be what it is. Now, the Indus River, and you think of the Indus River Valley, you think and, and you read back through history and you read through texts. I've always thought of this and heard of this as, as oh, it's, it's India. Well, also look at more modern history. In 1947, Pakistan became a country and separated from India. And the Indus River actually comes, if you'll see here on the right here, and it starts up here in China, and it wraps through this no man's land. It's considered a no man's land because both Pakistan and India lay claim to it. And so there's constant battles, constant things going on about this because it's Pakistan swears it's theirs. They, that's part of their land. India swears it's part of their land. It's, you get kind of in that Kashmir area. They they all swear that the Kashmiris are, we want to be our own thing. And then China also says, well, if everybody's involved with this, we want some of it too. So it is kind of a no man's land. But the river flows through China into this no man's land and then wraps back around, kind of comes around the west of Islamabad and then goes down through the heart of Pakistan and comes out just south of Karachi. Well, there's a bunch of rivers and streams and stuff here. If you look at the map, this is really green. It's a lush area. So Lahore is a very lush, lush, green, green, green area. You think of, of Pakistan, most people think just straight up desert. They're thinking Iran, Afghanistan. It's just nothing but tan and desert. That's Karachi. You get up into the north and you get into Islamabad and Lahore, 
It's a very green and very lush area. It's a totally different atmosphere. And this whole area is considered part of the Indus River Valley. And so if the Pishon River is the Indus River and coming down through over here, that changes things. That makes the potential for the Garden of Eden to wrap all the way down here through Egypt, down into potentially into Sudan area over here, wrap up Israel, Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, parts of Turkey, pretty much all of Iraq, parts of Iran. And if it comes all the way over, it just depends on how you'd cut that. If that fertile crescent comes down and around, it might swing back up and just follow the lush land, or it might just encompass the entire thing, which makes the garden very, very vast. To give you a reference point as to as far as sizes, if you look here at Pakistan, because I'm more familiar with that, we look here, Pakistan is roughly, give or take, it's, it's roughly the size of California. So that's a, a large region here. And so when we start talking this whole region right here, we're, we're talking western half of the United States? About? It, it's a large region. That would make, that would really, really make the Garden of Eden a, a rather large area. Let's keep going on this section though. 15 to 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in that day, for in the day you eat it, you shall surely die. Now work it and keep it. Man has always had purpose, right? There's always been a reason for man to be. There's always been something for mankind to do. It's not just a Hashtag live your best life, right? It's not just to do nothing and live on vacations, sipping Mai Tais all day long. That That is not the purpose of man. That is not the purpose of humankind. We need breaks. Yes. We need rest and relaxation. Yes. But that is not what we're supposed to do by and large. That is not the encompassing thing and, and the main thing that we're supposed to be doing. That actually goes against the design of what mankind is. We are to do a job. We are to work. Now, the word here in Hebrew for work, zabad, this means to serve. In fact, 70% of the time that it's used in the Old Testament, 287 times that this word is used throughout the Old Testament, 70%, it's 70.3%. So rounding down to 70% of the time that this word is used, it is meant to serve. Not necessarily till. Now, this word can mean to work as in like hard work. It can mean to till the ground. It can mean these things. But the majority of the time, in fact, I would say the vast majority when you're talking between two thirds and three quarters of the time that this is used, it means to serve. We are God's ambassadors. We are meant to serve the land. We're meant to protect it. We're meant to observe it. We are meant to use it appropriately not for our own just straight up benefit. It's not meant for something that we are supposed to, you know, take take for granted and use and abuse. We are supposed to work it and maintain this as God's ambassadors. We are here to work it and to serve it to maintain and provide for the next generations and for those around us, the rest of God's creation. God set his human representatives, so 
designed us special. He wants us special. He wants us as his representative. He set his human representative, Adam, the first man, in the garden. Put him in the garden to serve the garden and to work and maintain the garden, okay, to keep balance and to maintain that. Now, it could mean to work the land, i.e. farm. However, if God creates this massive garden that is filled with all of the fruit and everything that you could eat and everything good is there, it's all perfect. Why would he need to till it? Why would he need to farm it? Why would he need to work the land and to farm the land? If this is the perfect, in the perfect state in the way it's supposed to work, to me, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense that he's supposed to go and till the land and make it and go that direction. To me, it actually makes more sense that this means to serve, to maintain the balance, to go and make sure things are continued to go well, to be God's representative throughout. We are meant to do that. Okay. Now it says to God commanded, the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God, the one who created that covenant, commanded the man. This is a fun command, right? But he commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Awesome. Command me to eat food. Oh, great. I love this command already. But, <laughs> but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That's kind of a tougher one. You can eat everything except this. Well, mankind has always struggled with that, right? We've always struggled with the everything but. Everything but. Well, I have celiac. Like I can't, I can't eat gluten. When I do, I get heart attack symptoms. Like it's bad. It hits me really, really hard. So for me, it's really easy to not eat gluten because I don't want to feel like I need to go move to the ER. However, we go out of the country, I can eat anything. Literally every country we've, we visited, Mexico, Dominican Republic, uh, we've been in Qatar, just in the airport. So I wouldn't normally count that, but I've eaten there. So I count it just because I've eaten there. Pakistan, we go through. I can eat everywhere but here in America, here in the United States. Is it because what we do that we, I don't know. But the point is, I know what it's like to not be able to, but then when I get somewhere where I can, I, I go all ham for that, right? And, and so it's it's easy to see it's really hard to, to maintain. Say, don't look down. What's the first thing you're going to do? You look down. You look down. Because that's our, that's our nature. That's what we tend to do. So God says, just, you can have everything, but don't eat that. But why? Why would God even do that? If there was that opportunity, why would God ever even put it there? And by the way, that is a question that's asked a lot. Why does God allow evil? Why, why, is, why was Satan ever even created to begin with? Why was the tree, of, the, the tree that they couldn't eat even put in the garden? Why was that even there? Why was it an option? Well, probably because God doesn't want robots. If God wanted subserv, you know, servant robots, he would have made servant robots. But we see some of the angels followed follows Lucifer. Some of them go away. They they choose to do something different. They choose not to follow God. God gives free will and choice. But if there's no other choice but to follow God, it's not really a choice. That's a fake choice. That's a fallacy. But if he puts something there to where you can do this, you have the choice. You can eat of everything. 
I am permitting you to do everything here except this one thing. And if you do this one thing, it's over. Like the, the, the punishment for that is complete and total separation. It is a massive punishment. You will die. Massive, massive punishment. But that is still a choice. Something that we had the opportunity as humankind had the opportunity. And we even see that the, even, even some of the angels chose to go against God. God allows opportunity and allows choices because he doesn't just want forced obedience. He wants us to choose him because he chose us first. And that speaks volumes. One last thing I want to point out here is, is notice in verse 17, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat from the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The tree of life is never mentioned here. The tree of life is not mentioned. We're told that the tree of life is in the midst and also the tree of knowledge of good and life, good, uh, good and evil. But then when God starts speaking here, he says, you can eat of everything except the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So mankind potentially could have just lived forever in the garden with God, never dying as it was meant to be, be perfect, perfect. When we get to heaven, perfect bodies, there's no more sickness. There's no more pain. All of that's gone. It's how it was meant to be, which by the way, that's also why some people would say there are certain groups. I'm not going to point them out by name here, but there are certain groups who say, see, we were always meant to work until and so some people get to go to heaven and they get to be served because they're great. There's a certain specific number of them. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. But the rest of us get to work the fields and produce the food and to do all of this other stuff because even in the garden, they were meant to work. I don't understand, if, and, and it doesn't make sense to me, both logically and, and just by the terms used here, it means to serve. That doesn't, doesn't mean necessarily to till the ground. It can but if it's already perfect, it doesn't mean to till it. Just go and, and do what you need, right? And be God's representative to it. So it's just one of those, like, ah, some of this stuff just doesn't make sense. But let's get to 18 to 25, not alone. We're going to cruise through this because we're, we're running on time here. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. Pause really fast. Everything that God has done thus far, it is good. He saw it is good. God saw and he said, it is not good that man should be alone. This is in the garden, okay? He's already put him in the garden. He's there as representation. He's with God and with the cherub. He's there with the angels. He's there with God. They're co-mingling. And it's not good that he is alone. Why? Because if even though we're made in the image of God, we're corporeal, we're physical. There's tangibleness here. God is spirit. Angels are spirit. They're not physical. Now they can, we see through scripture, they can embody themselves and show themselves as physical. They can have physical attributes. They, they can cross planes. God, we see, you know, the angel of the Lord. Most of the time when you see the angel of the Lord, most people believe that is the son of God. That is Jesus pre-Jesus. Okay, so you get some of this, like, they can cross boundaries and do this. But to be fully in life, because they're in life, right? Their spirit is in life, but we are in life currently. We're physical and tangible. We can't cross planes. We're not made like that. So we're stuck here until 
we do cross planes. <laughs> it's one way trip. So it's not good that we be alone because at that point, man was the only thing. And so we get back into the creation here. God says it's not good for him to be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God formed every had formed. Mind you, had formed. Some people would sit there and say, well, whoa, whoa, whoa. This doesn't necessarily fit with the other days of creation. First of all, it's storytelling and it's narrative. The point is to get the point across, is to get certain things across, not necessarily have everything be lined up. However, it says, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed. Not said, did formed, had formed. God had formed. Like man, he had formed. Not saying God created man and therefore then he did form. After that, it says, had formed. Every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. So kind of like lining them up for the ark brings them up, lines them up. What are you going to call them? Whatever the man called the living creatures, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, all the birds of the heavens, and every beast of the field. Named them all. That is, by the way, this is the first sign to where we see God giving man, mankind, the rights and privileges and work. We're told he gave us the work, right? Said there was stuff for him to do. Now we see that we are being God's representation. He's giving us and giving Adam, giving man that right and saying, whatever you do, so shall it be. And here it is. Name them. Take care of this. So Adam names them. For Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep. And while he slept, meaning Adam, not God, while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then he said, I always imagine this kind of groggy, like coming out of anesthesia from a surgery. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Notice here he's even making a point. He's just turning this and making this into another point. Why, why do we leave our families? Why do we leave our parents and go and, and be with our wives and we hold our wives and then our family in a high, high regard like this? It's because from the very beginning, when God created woman from man, you know, chicken and the egg, right? When God created woman from man, he said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And so because that happened, Therefore, man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. They should not physically become one flesh. But trust me, when you when you are married, if you've never been, when you are married, it's it's a total bond. And when you get when that gets torn apart, whether that might be by death or a divorce or whatever, it shreds and you're you're no longer the same. It changes both of you. Being married changes both of you. And when that separation happens, it can be very brutal. And it can make a lot of devastating changes. All right. So God creates animals as potential companions or had already created animals and let God and let Adam name him, name them. It's the first sign of man being God's representative in action. But there wasn't a, an, a suitable partner for Adam. So God put him to sleep, takes a rib, heals it up. 
and creates Eve. Now I love some, uh, there's, there's an old saying, I can't remember who it was that said this, but you know, the rib made sense. Didn't take him from, didn't take the bone from the head. So she's not above him. Didn't take from the feet. So she's not beneath him. Took him from the side. So they're equal and close to the heart, you know, under the arm. So that being protected and near the heart to be cherished, right? So that's an old, old saying, love it. It gives great representation of this. Might be reading a little bit into it, but it's still a nice concept and a great way to look at this. Now, because of this, some people want to say, well, men have a, a less ribs than women. No, false. Man started with the same amount of ribs. God pulled it to create a woman. When she started having children, man again started having the same amount of ribs. Because man and woman, husband and wife are one flesh, the man is to put the interests of his wife above all of others, signifying by leaving the mother and father. Like if you bring this in, you are now to care for her. That leaves your father and mother. Now, this was a totally different culture concept and a different cultural background. Leaving meant a little different than what it means to us today in a Western context, but that's okay. That's neither here nor there. We get the generic point, and I think the generic point is, is good enough for, for what we're doing. Finish this up, 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Seems like a really interesting point to make, but it's there. Naked and not ashamed in the ideal state, as we were and we were meant to be, basically how we come into the world, man and woman view their personhood and their sexuality with wholeness. It's fine. It's how it was designed. They feel no shame in their nakedness and they feel no shame with who they are. They were made man. They were made woman. They have different body types. They were fine with that because they understood this is how I was made. This is how I'm meant to be. And that's how we're supposed to be. It's a sign and symbol of the openness and trust that, that they had, but they lose this at the fall. It's saying, and it's showing that is a symptom of being in the sin-filled world, being in sin, having issues with yourself, with your body, having issues with your sexuality, in being who you were physically made to be, and, and those kinds of relations that you were meant to have in appropriate manners, that's a sign of being in a sin-filled world. That is not, a, that's not normal. That's not natural. That's not how we were meant to be. That's not how we were made to be. That's not how the natural origins of it work. That's not how it's meant to be. They were not ashamed because they were who they were meant to be. All right, what can we take away as we wrap this up? First of all, God created mankind in more than a utilitarian way. He wanted us to be his representatives here on earth. So he made us artistically and wonderfully. He also breathed life into us and wants us to live abundantly in his design and within his plan. Eden would have been the perfect atmosphere where things were as they were meant to be. It would have been God's place to directly interact with his creation. And it would have included having his counsel there as well for meetings, not all meetings per se, but they would kind of go back and forth. God wanted man to serve as his representative. And for the first time, we see God say something that he made is not good. And it was not good for man to be alone. So God had Adam beginning begin his representation by naming the animals that were created. And finally, we are created and made 
for a relation with God, for a relation with the rest of creation, and for relation with each other. Since there was no animal suited, God made woman from man for man. Woman and man are designed and made specifically for each other as partners. That is God's design. That is the design. In fact, even if you wanted to strip God out of the picture and just say we, it's all nature and there is no God, which by the way, there is a God, but even if you wanted that argument, that is still the design we see in nature. That is how this works. And we should honor that and trusting that we are made how we are supposed to be made. We are who we are supposed to be. We are how we are supposed to be. And if God says we're supposed to change, we should be praying and asking God to work in us and through us through his Holy Spirit. Father God, I want to thank you so much for today. Thank you for your word and showing us this wonderful creation story and showing that you had a plan and a purpose for all of us and for all of this. And I just ask that you you heal hearts, you heal minds, God, that, that we can begin to see ourselves and each other as wonderful and beautifully made creation. God, that you artistically created mankind and that you artistically created each and every one of us. I just ask that you help us begin to see ourselves as your sons and daughters and as your design and made the way you want us made. And I just ask that you be with us as we go out, that you help us to steward things appropriately, to be your representatives appropriately everywhere we go with the people we meet, with the animals we are greeted with, with nature all around us, God. That you help us and encourage us and empower us to be your representatives in the way that you want us to be. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, thank you guys so much for joining. I hope you got something out of it. This was a, a lot and a big one. Thanks for being here. We'll see you guys next time. Bye-bye.